ever done a Christmas card? I, I remember those moments in life when you have a card and you open it up and, and what the card says just isn't quite enough. You know, some of you just sign your name and go, hey, whatever they say, that's good enough for me. Others, you feel like you got to write something, right? You ever felt just guilted into writing something in a card? I mean, there's this whole entire blank space on a card. And no matter how big you sign your name, it can still look like, well, gee, somebody could have said more, right? And so the Christmas season tends to be that time where we want to say something more to express our love and appreciation and all that kind of stuff. And, and in case you've ever got writer's block when it comes to a Christmas card, American Greetings has you covered. You can go to American Greetings website, and they have an article they have published called this. Here it is. No, no, no kidding. It's called What to Write in a Christmas Card. And then, if, as though that wasn't enough, they categorize it, all right? So things you could write for a family member, things you could write for a friend, things you could write for your pet, things you could write for whatever. They have it categorized, right? So here's some examples I found online that I thought were just extra moving. Here's, here's a, a general message for anyone. So it could be coworker, neighbor, whatever. Here it is. You ready? For the awe-inspiring words of American greetings. Here it is. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And an amazingly awesome new year. I mean, who could think of that kind of stuff, right? I mean, only the professionals can think of that. If you're writing somebody uh, in your family a Christmas message, they give you ideas for that too. Here, here it is. Christmas is all about celebrating the people we care about most. And no one means more to me than my special family like you. That's why I had to go to a website and find something to write special <laughs> to someone like you, right? Or maybe it's a card for a friend, feeling grateful at Christmas for the awesome friend I have in you, and for a website that gives me friendly greetings to write. Here's something for that someone special. I couldn't ask for a better gift than spending Christmas with you, except maybe the gift of using my own words to tell you how special you are to me. And finally, that Christmas greeting for the person who doesn't celebrate Christmas, sorry I sent you this Christmas card. <laughs> I made that one up. Of course, American Greetings wouldn't do that. But Christmas Greetings, you've maybe received a card and appreciate the thought and all that goes into it. But we're going to do a series called Christmas Greetings. And what it's really about is taking a look at the various greetings, and there are several, that happen around the story of Christ's birth. Now, I know you've heard the story of Christ's birth countless times because some of you have been followers of Christ for a long time. But I promise you, we're going to dig into these greetings and look at them in a way perhaps you've not looked before. To discover that those greetings, yes, were very specific for a moment in history, but there's an aspect of those greetings that is still for us today. And today we're going to talk about a greeting of unexpected news. Unexpected news. And as you go to your Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles, the Gospel of Luke. How many of you have ever received unexpected news? I remember the day that Trisha and I had discovered that she was pregnant with our third child, which came as a surprise to us because it had been nine years since we had had a child, and we weren't anticipating having another child, but we were blessed with a gift of a little girl named Kelly Ray Dufour. Maybe your news that you've received at times wasn't so pleasant. Maybe you've received unexpected news that was hard. Maybe your job was terminated. Uh, maybe there was more month, 
than you had money. And there was those kinds of unexpected news when the wife says, oh, we got nothing in the checking account. And you have 10 days left of your month. Unexpected news. That's what we see today in today's account from the birth of Christ. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 1 because I think it's interesting that when Luke writes an account of the life of Jesus, this is all about Jesus, right? Wouldn't you think he would begin the story with Jesus? Like once upon a time, there was a little baby boy named Jesus, right? Or something like that. But what's interesting about this is that Luke doesn't start with Jesus. And I find this fascinating because many of us, when it comes to Christmas, we skip right over Luke chapter 1. And we go to Luke chapter 2, which we heard quoted by Linus in the special Christmas Peanuts episode, right? That's many of you. That's the only place you hear Luke 2 unless you read it yourself. But can I tell you, Luke 1 is still part of the Christmas story. And in Luke 1, we find a Christmas greeting, an unexpected greeting. Let's go, let's go to it. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says that in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, who happens to be kind of the high priest of the whole tribes. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I like the way Luke writes because he likes to insert the birth of Christ into real time and real history to remind us this isn't some fairy tale story that we read around the Christmas season to feel good about giving. This is a real event in real time, in real history. And Luke, as a physician by trade, makes sure we understand this was real. So he puts it into a time, and he says, during the days, or in the time of King Herod. Now, we all know who Herod is, if you pay any attention to the Christmas story, right? He's the king who hears about the birth of a potentially rival king in Bethlehem, and sends his soldiers out to slaughter baby boys that were born in the time window that this promised king would also be born. So we know Herod. And Herod reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., All right, so what that means, and this is going to upset your theology a little bit, what this means is that Jesus was not born on 0 B.C. or A.D., okay? Likely, Jesus was born 4 B.C., which means before Christ, right? That's what we all use for B.C., before Christ. But actually, Jesus was born even before he came, I guess, if you look at the math right. Um, So that puts Jesus' birth around 4 B.C. because this happens, this parallel story we're going to look at of of Elizabeth and and Zechariah happen around the the announcement of Jesus, which we'll get to later. And it talks about these two characters that maybe you've not heard much about, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was a priest, which means he was from the tribe of Levi, the, the, the priestly tribe of the descendants of Aaron, just like Elizabeth, his wife, was. And we discover some things about him. First of all, that he's part of a division of the tribes. Because in this time in history, there were 24 divisions of priests that would minister to the Lord during a set week or two of the year. And so there were 24 divisions of 18,000 priests. And he's just one of 18,000 to 20 priests 
in this story. How does he make it into the story around Jesus? We'll discover here in just a little bit. Then we have this wonderful lady named Elizabeth. And what we know about her is she's of the, basically, of the lineage of Aaron. And they're both holy and blameless. They obey God completely. That's what makes the next part of this story, introducing these characters, a bit of a paradox. Because how could they be holy and blameless before God, and yet Elizabeth suffers with infertility? Because no sooner are we introduced to these characters than we hear the plight of their problem, the issue they've been facing all of their life. You see, a girl would be pledged to marry while she was still quite young. And the purpose of marrying a woman was to carry, and I don't mean to be little ladies at all, but this is just cultural, okay? Culturally speaking, you got married, and the big issue was to produce children, to produce seed. So your family legacy continues on. The Jews, while they believed in kind of a sense of immortality and eternal life, they believed that was perpetuated through their seed. That's why, particularly, one, they were really hung up on genealogy, and two, that was part of the Israel's blessing, that they would have children and children and children. And here you have a wonderful, God-fearing, blameless woman of the tribe of Aaron, not able to conceive. And it says, not only that, but they're well along in years. So this has been an issue she has lived with since the day she discovered she could no longer or could not bear children. Lifelong problem that we discover about these people who seem to be blameless. And the combination of her age and her infertility means that she is not going to be able to do what has been expected of her. And because of that, she lives, as we'll see in a moment, with a measure of disgrace and shame. To the point where it's even hard to be public with other people. It's hard to go celebrate the birth of a child with your friend when you have not been able to do that. And here she is living in this sense of disgrace and mourning, and it's not been good for them. And this is an example, by the way, of bad things that happen to good people for no apparent reason. You know, we want to give reasons behind things that happen. And I sit with families that are grieving because of the loss of a child or a loss of a loved one, and, and they always want to know why. And they want to internalize the why and make it something they have done. Maybe if I'd been better, if I was good enough, or maybe we could have prevented, they, they try to find a reason for it. And can I just tell you, sometimes bad things happen to good people for what appears to be no apparent reason, at least that we can see. And if you're looking to the Bible, to make life fair, can I tell you, you're not going to find evidence for a fair life in the Bible. I mean, Jesus lived about the most blameless, perfect life ever, and look what happened to him, right? So you're not going to find fairness in the Bible. In fact, if you're following Jesus so that life is fair, you're not going to have a very good following of Jesus' time, because it's just not. And this is another example of that, but here's what I've discovered in my own life to be true. My experience has proven that God is at work for my good, even in circumstances that don't feel good, even through circumstances that are unfair. And the irony of this whole account is found in the meaning of Zechariah and Elizabeth's names. You know, you have to remember that in biblical culture, you named somebody something in particular, and that name had a significance to their life. For example, Zechariah, you know what his name means? Zechariah's name means 
God remembers. God remembers. So every time Zechariah hears his name, he's hearing God remembers. But maybe Zacharias think, oh, yeah, <laughs> well, if God remembers, how come he's not remembering my prayer? That Elizabeth and I have prayed for years. If God remembers, then why doesn't he remember the promise that he's given the people of Israel that they will be blessed and they'll produce children? Why doesn't he remember any of that? And Elizabeth's name, you know what her name means? When she hears her name Elizabeth, she's hearing people say, my God is faithful. How do you like that one if you're Elizabeth? My God is faithful? This does not feel like faithful. I'm trying to do what every good woman in this culture wants to do, and I'm not able to. Where's God's faithfulness in this? So you have this couple, old, unable to produce children, with names that seem so contrary to the life they are living. And like all people, like you and me, they had their own if-onlys. If only God would give us a son, which is what every Jewish woman wanted. If only God would give us the Messiah. If I could only be the one. See, every Jewish woman in her heart, she wanted to be the one that would give birth to the Messiah. And if only I would be that, life would be better. Life would be satisfying. I would feel better about myself, whatever. And all of us have an if only. You could fill in the blank. What is your if only? And here's the thing about if-onlys. If-onlys have the ability to do two things. One, to push us closer to God. Because when you have this desire in your heart and this if-only, sometimes as followers of Christ, that will cause us to lean into God and trust him for his promises and keep seeking him for the breakthrough or the answer we're looking for. But I've seen if-onlys do the other thing too. Where over time, people gave up decided that they were going to walk away from God based on their if only, because God didn't answer the way they wanted God to answer. You know, God's best lessons in life come in the midst of real life issues. And I've discovered a lot of things in the school of hard knocks about God. Maybe you have too. And there are times you can read something in scripture and tuck it away later, but there are things you learn in the thick of life that you can only learn in the thick of life about God. And here's our first bit of unexpected news that we're going to see today. As we set the stage for this story about Elizabeth and Zechariah, here it is. Your limitation does not limit the effectiveness of God's plan. Your limitation. For Elizabeth, it was, I cannot produce children. Your limitation does not limit the effectiveness of God's plan. In other words, your experience or reaction to that might, okay, because we all have reactions, we all have ways we're going to respond to our limitations, that can often keep us shelved, that can keep us living a small life. But God regularly, as you look at Scripture, you know what He does? He regularly works great things through people who had limits that they constantly reminded God about. You know, I take you back to the story of Abraham and Sarah. Another old couple, unable to produce children, who God gave a promise to that through their seed, which means a child, the whole world would be blessed. But God, Sarah can't have children. You fast forward to Moses, 
The one who was going to become the great leader of the nation of Israel who would bring them out of captivity in Egypt and lead them into their land of promise. And he was like, but God, you got the wrong guy. I can't hardly talk without stuttering. I think you have the wrong person. Who am I? And the story goes on. Gideon, I can name you countless people who looked at the call of God upon their life and said, no, I've got limits that keep me from that. And God has proven again and again, like he will in this story as well, that your limits do not create limitations on God's ability to carry out his plan. In fact, we need to learn to look at our limits differently. Here's what I've learned to do. I've learned to look at my limits as a conduit through which God works in and through my life to accomplish his purpose. That's why Paul could say, you know what, I boast in my weaknesses. Because it's in those things where God's strength is made real in the midst of my weakness. Well, let's see how it goes on for them in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. It says that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. I just want to pause here for a second. So Zechariah is serving now with his division the one of two weeks they will serve annually at the temple. And he is now the one who is chosen by the rolling of dice, basically, by God to be the one who would go into the temple. Now, in the temple, there's kind of this holy of holies. Then there's this most holy place or the the holy place that surrounds the holy of holies. And that's where the priest would go in and offer the burning of incense. And with that, the prayers on behalf of the nation. And so when you were chosen for that task, this was a a once-in-a-lifetime deal. You would never do it again. And there were a lot of priests who would never be in that place doing what Zechariah was doing this one day of his entire life that he would be chosen to do this. And he goes in and he begins to offer the incense. And with that, he has these memorized prayers that he's been taught as a priest to speak over his nation as he lifts the prayers before the Lord. Here's what I think. I think Zechariah, being a pretty sharp guy, leverages this moment and says, okay, here I am in the in the only place I can go as a priest, only once a year can the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. So here I am. I'm going to take opportunity here. I'm going to just lift up one prayer on my behalf. I mean, we don't see it recorded. We don't see it that way, but we see it implied here in a moment. So he's praying for the nation of Israel, and I think he prays one more time. I don't know. That's just how I will interpret the rest of the story, because here it goes. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at his right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now, I want us to pause here because here's the thing. We've become accustomed to angels, right? Because when we look at the story of Christmas especially, there's like angels everywhere. In fact, now we put them in bathrobes or little halos on their heads and stand them up on the platform to tell the Christmas story. We're so used to this idea of angels. But can I remind you, they weren't. All right, when Zechariah was serving that day, God had been silent for over 400 years. Never in his lifetime had he heard a prophet speak. Never in his lifetime had he heard any angelic message from heaven. It seemed as though God was silent. So this wasn't a normal experience to walk into the temple. Oh yeah, how's it going over there, angel? Good to see you again. I mean, this was not normal. 
This was unusual. In fact, if you were a priest serving in the temple and you saw an angel, you would think it was probably a death angel who came to kill you because you were impure in God's holy place. So he sees an angel, and that's why he's a bit startled. And a guy his age, God must have known what he was doing because I think some guys his age seeing an angel in the holy place would have croaked over with a heart attack. But notice what the angel says. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said these words, basically, do not be afraid, Zechariah. That's how all the angels start. That's like their opening line. Why? Because everybody is afraid. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? We don't know what prayer. He just says your prayer. He was praying for Israel, yes, but I think, like I said, he snuck a prayer in there. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. So something to understand about this part of the story is the beauty of God's timing. We can't miss this. This is a once-in-a-lifetime moment that Zechariah is on division to be on duty at the temple, and he's the one chosen. What seems to be a total random set of events, God is using for his purpose. Maybe right now your life feels like a random set of events. Don't miss the fact that God works through those for his purpose. All right, so here he is. He's in this time in his life. And the question I have is, why did God wait so long? Right? I mean, why didn't God have him be on duty back when he and Elizabeth were a young couple? Why didn't God arrange the timeline for him to be in the temple to offer his prayer and God say, hey, your prayer was heard and your wife's going to have a child? Why wait until they're old? Why wait until they are past child-rearing days? Why, why didn't he answer sooner? How many of you have been to those points in your own life when you've thought to yourself, why didn't God answer when I wanted him to? Or maybe you're still there. Why isn't God answering Here's something you have to understand about God's plan. God's plan has layers and it has players, all right? God's plan has layers to it and players all involved in it. And so there might be times that you're praying for God to do something and he's saying, hang on, I've got layers and players that I'm working through here. And so another unexpected piece of news you can get from this story is this. God's plan for you isn't about you. Okay? God's plan for you isn't even about you. And that's something we discover about this point. Yes, God has a plan and a purpose for you, but can I remind you, we are never the end of that purpose. We are the means of a greater purpose of what God wants to do. It's never about you. Yes, God wants to use you. He wants to to equip you. He wants to empower you, but it's never about you. And so when you're praying and don't feel like God's answering on your time, remember God's plan is not about you. There's layers and there's players. And here's where we have to to look at it from the context of Zachariah and Elizabeth. The Bible says that God sent his son at the appointed time. In Galatians, Paul says, at just the right time. 
Jesus was born of a virgin, right? Of Mary. Just the right time. So God knew what he was doing. God had a timeline. And it seemed like, God, you'd been silent for 400 years. Why not send Jesus like the day after Adam and Eve ate the apple, right? I mean, come on. But God had a plan. From the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, his story began. And his plan began to unfold through the Old Testament, which gets confusing sometimes to read. But God's plan is marching forward, and it's unfolding as the story progresses. And one of the things that we can discover about Zechariah and Elizabeth is they didn't know the entirety of God's story. We look at the Bible now and read it in history. They're living it, right? So they don't see all that God's doing. They don't see or know even the unfolding completely of God's plan. They might know a Messiah is coming who will be deliverer of the nation of Israel. They, they may know some of these things, but they don't know God's timeline. They don't know exactly what God is doing. And here's the thing, though, that God was up to. Their whole life, Zachariah and Elizabeth, their whole life was building up to this one miraculous moment in history. And so that means all of the confusion, the frustration, the disgrace, the disappointment, the shame, the trusting of God, and even the hope of God, all those things were building up to a moment in history that really wasn't about them. They were a parallel story in what God was doing. And here's the thing. The hopes and dreams that were bound up in their hearts about having a child, it was part of God's ultimate plan. But it had a specific time that it was going to unfold because this child that they were going to have, it wasn't just about John. Now, what was happening in God's plan wasn't, I want to give John to Elizabeth and Zechariah. No, there was a bigger story that John even recognizes later in his adulthood, and that was this. We're not just giving a child to Elizabeth and Zechariah. God's actually giving a savior to the entire world. And you're a player in this story. And you're one of the layers to the story. But remember, my plan is not just about you. It's about Jesus. And so what is John? John's born to be the one, we'll discover here in a moment, who prepares the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the one who turns the hearts of Israel toward their Savior who is coming. They were part of God's plan. So could it be that your current unanswered prayer is on hold because God is working out a plan greater than you could ever imagine in other layers with other players, and you're seeking God and you're asking, but the time is not right because God is still working. Remember, his plan isn't just about you. Sometimes it's about the people around you. It's about the others that are involved in your life, and God's timing is perfect with the answer he's going to bring, but don't confuse it and say it's all about me. That happens in our consumeristic mindset, that God's plan is all about me. It's not. He's got layers, and he's got players, when that plan is going to be revealed. But here's the thing. When it's time for God's plan to be revealed, nothing, not even impossible circumstances, will circumvent his plan. And so while it doesn't make sense to us to look at Elizabeth and Zechariah getting older and older and struggling with infertility, that would seem quite contrary to what God was going to do. But nothing will limit or hinder his plan, as we already heard, when it's time. You know, I think that Zechariah and Elizabeth both probably felt that their best days were behind them. 
You know, and here he was doing his last kind of final once-in-a-lifetime gig where he gets to go into the temple and do this thing. And now he's probably thinking, when I go home, we're done. We're just old people, and we'll just sit back now, and we'll just be confused as to why God didn't answer our prayer. That's probably what they could have been thinking. And can I just remind you, it doesn't matter how old you are in this room today. Listen to me. God has a plan for all seasons of our life. And you might be thinking your best days are behind you, and you're looking forward to retirement, and not only from work, but maybe even from God's mission for your life. Can I remind you that they're a story of somebody who could never say, we're done working for God. Even late in life, he had a season and a purpose for what they were going through. It kind of reminds me of a thing I heard once about the seasons of life we go through. You know, it would be kind of like an ant walking across a, a masterpiece like a Rembrandt. Imagine that you were an ant walking across a large masterpiece. You could spend a good portion of your journey walking across brown, right? Now, if you like brown, praise God. Uh, but if you don't like brown and all you look around and see is brown, you might think, why am I going through a season of brown? But eventually that ant's going to go from brown to green. And he's going to think, well, hey, finally, some signs of life. Some things are green. Some things are good. That's good. And then he'll go from green to a dark blue. And as he's going across this masterpiece, he's going to confront all these different colors, some pleasant, some dark, some mysterious. He might hit a little streak of white or yellow where it seems like, aha, I've had some understanding, some awakening, just to go again across some black. And here's the thing. The ant can never take in the entire masterpiece, can he? All he can do is live in the colors that have been given him to walk across. Friends, let me tell you, sometimes life feels like ants walking across a masterpiece. You may not see it all. You may not get it all. You might be in an over, in your opinion, an overlong season of brown. But God is at work. And sometimes we can't see it this side of eternity. But never underestimate God's plan unfolding because it's not just about you. There's a masterpiece he's working, and we're a part of that. And that's something we can learn from them. As we go on in Luke chapter 1, verse 14, the angel talks about John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. I'm just going to pause there and say that's never happened before, okay? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon people for a certain season or a a job or a task, like Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon Samson and give him supernatural strength, and he would do these things, or upon uh, like a king, and he would prophesy, or upon a, a prophet, and he would give an utterance. But the Holy Spirit did not dwell in a believer or in a God follower. This is the first time from birth he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, he will bring many or back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, that would be Jesus, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great prophet of the Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we've talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth names, what they mean, but I think it's interesting that the angel Gabriel said, you're going to name him John. Now, normally naming was the job given to the father of the family. And he would choose a name based on a significant moment in what's happening in their family or what he sees in his child. 
That's what he would name the child. But the times that we see God stepping in when it comes to a miraculous kind of birth, God gives the name. You know what John means? It means gift of God. That's what the name means, gift of God. And certainly he was a gift to Zechariah and Elizabeth who had been waiting for a child. But this gift wasn't meant to be kept to themselves. In fact, the angel goes on to say that basically John, who was a gift to his parents, was also meant to be a gift to the nation of Israel, to to those around him. And this gift of God was to be used of God to prepare people for the Son of God. That's what John came to do. The birth of John, I think, was placed into the narrative of Luke's story about the coming of Jesus. And one reason for that would be to remind us that we have a job to do. That John was born for a very specific purpose, to prepare people for Jesus. Could it be possible this Christmas season that God has you strategically placed in your family or with your friends because he wants to use you as a gift of God to share the good news of Christ with those around you? In fact, I think that's another piece of unexpected news we can glean from this story, that you are the gift of God, used by God to introduce someone to Jesus this Christmas. You ever thought about that? This is the one time of the year when people are surrounded by the story of Jesus. Yeah, maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they think it's just mythical. Maybe they think it's just a fairy tale story. But you know what? You turn on 99.1, which is not a Christian radio station, and you're going to hear Christmas songs. Yeah, you're going to hear Jingle Bells and Holly Jolly Christmas and all that, but guess what else you're going to hear? Silent night, holy night. You're going to hear, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. You're going to hear, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn. They're going to hear these songs. And these songs are birthed out of the story of Jesus. What other time of the year does does the radio station and the TV even proclaim the story of Jesus? You know, even around Easter, you don't turn on a station three months before Easter and start listening to Easter songs, right? I mean, nobody does that. There's not like any Easter carols, right? There's no, nobody, this is the one time of the year when the radio station, the TV, even the decorations they're going to find outside people's houses are going to remind us of the birth of Jesus. Why don't we leverage this to use that for the purpose of introducing that person to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing as Christ's followers, not waiting for the pastor to preach some Christmas message that moves the hearts of the masses and they become followers of Jesus. It's we, the people of God, the gifts of God to our friends and family who are there to share the good news. And what a great time to do it when they're surrounded by the message of Jesus. It can be as simple as this. Hey, what do you think about all these songs that talk about Jesus? It's called open-ended conversation. Don't say, do you believe in Jesus? That's a, that's, that's a conversation closer. But what do you think about all these songs about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus was? Simple questions like that to family or friends can begin a conversation that God could use to bring hope into the lives of somebody who needs it. Finally, as we go to the close of this story, Luke chapter 1, verse 18 and following, it says, Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I mean, I'd be pretty sure if there was an angel, I guess, standing in here talking to me, but he's kind of like, okay, look, here's the thing. I'm old. She's old, right? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. 
And my wife is well along in years. Notice how kind he was to his wife. Didn't put a number, just well along. I'm old, but she's well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Now, in case you don't know what that means, that's like, that's like, this is like the trump card of angels, all right? I am Gabriel. Gabriel is, if there was ever somebody who was like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of angels, it would be Gabriel, all right? He was the guy in the Old Testament who fought through the masses to deliver a message to Daniel. This guy is powerful. He's the power cluster angel who announces. He's not some little fluttering thing that comes and says, hey, how's it going? I'm sent from God. No, I mean, picture him. I am Gabriel. You know, he's standing there talking to him. And he says this, I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Well, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was stayed so long in the temple. And he had a task to do. It was pretty brief. He'd come out then. He'd bless the people with a priestly prayer, like the Lord bless you and keep you and so forth. And wondering, where's he at? So when he came out, he could not speak to them. In other words, he couldn't do his priestly duty of blessing them because he did not have the ability to speak. And some wives were going, man, I wish my husband would pick up on that one. Um, anyway, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So they played a game of charades, and nobody was quite understanding what was going on, but they knew something mysterious happened. Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, so he stayed there the remainder of his week. He returned home. He didn't live there. He lived in the hill country surrounding Jerusalem. He returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, remained in seclusion, probably because she was shocked she was pregnant and too embarrassed of what would happen if she loses this baby. So she stays in seclusion. Verse 25, they'll listen to her words. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, in other words, okay, in this impossible situation, when all hope seemed to be lost, in these days, he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. I think this is interesting. Remember that with infertility, there came the sense of disgrace and shame for a woman. And she may have even been shamed by her friends. But she looks at this now and she's pregnant. She's like, wow, the Lord has done this for me. And what he has done has erased her disgrace. You know what disgrace means? When you look, when you look up in the dictionary, you know what disgrace means? Disgrace means a removal or a reversal of grace or of favor. It means to fall out of somebody's favor. And so when you are disgraced, it's because you have lost face. You have lost a sense of favor with the person you fell out of that grace or favor with. And so she was feeling disgrace, right? That she had somehow been the person that grace was not applicable to. It was actually reversed away from her. But this story, she was showered by God's favor and given his grace. What is God's grace? Grace is God's ability in our inability. 
Okay? There was nothing Zechariah or Elizabeth could do to solve their problem. They couldn't try harder. In fact, John wasn't a product of parents who tried harder, who behaved better, who believed harder, who were more pure. No, they were already all those things. He wasn't the product of any human effort. You know what he was? Well, he was a gift of God, exactly what his name means. He was grace given to Elizabeth. And guess what happened when that grace was bestowed on her? It removed disgrace. Now, I think there's something here that we can glean. Another piece of unexpected news this Christmas season for you, and that's this, that God's favor in your life, get this, God's favor in your life removes disgrace from your life. Maybe you don't feel disgraced because of infertility. Maybe for you, it's your lifestyle. Maybe it's the way you've lived. Maybe it's the things you've done, decisions you've made. And it, it's like a cloud of disgrace that hovers over you or of shame that just wears you down. But if you've experienced God's grace in your life, which comes by embracing that Jesus was indeed the Son of God who came to be an extension of God's grace to us, when we can embrace that grace, it removes disgrace. In fact, you could kind of say it this way, that disgrace cannot survive under the power of God's amazing grace because, well, you're no longer the one who's experienced a grace reversal or a removal of grace. She's experienced God's grace. And here's something you've got to hear. It doesn't matter how you feel today about yourself. If you're a follower of God and Christ is your Savior and you've been touched by his grace, there is no disgrace over your life. It cannot coexist with God's grace. And this is the message I want you guys to hear today. It doesn't matter if you feel like you've fallen away from God's grace and you're left wallowing in a sense of shame and disgrace. Hear these words. God's grace is still available to you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived. That's why he died, to be an extension of grace to you. But will you embrace that and allow it to erase the disgrace in your life? That's what Elizabeth learned. Look at what God has done for me. He's removed my disgrace. He's done the same for you, and will do it again. But will you allow that grace to be at work in your life? So Christmas brought unexpected greetings of unexpected news. Which one did you need to hear today? Maybe for you it was that your limitation does not limit the effectiveness of God's plan and purpose for you. And you're going to trust God to work through your weakness and your limits. Or maybe for you, it's God's plan isn't just about you. And you've been wondering why he's not answering and why he's not doing it the way you think he should. And you've got to recognize you're a part, layer and player. There's more that God is doing. Be patient with the process. Or maybe you're feeling today that you're the gift of God that's going to be used by God to help introduce somebody to the hope of Jesus this Christmas. Or for others, maybe for you, it's really embracing God's favor that removes disgrace from your life. I'd like us just to maybe close our eyes and think about this for a moment. Make a, make a look inward to your own heart and, and say, where does this apply to me today? And God, I thank you that you speak to us through these stories, that yes, it was a, a point in history that Luke was very careful to lay out for us, but Lord, I think it echoes down today still to us. 
the unexpected news still has elements that we can apply today to our life. And I thank you, Lord, that no matter what we feel about ourselves, that nothing within us, no limits that we have, can put limitations on the success and the effectiveness of your purpose. I pray for those who have been wondering, am I good enough? Am I ready to, to step into serving God in some way? May they recognize that you work through our weakness. And our limits are actually a conduit for your power to work through. So thank you for that assurance today. May that motivate some people to step into serving you, to talk into their friends about who you are while they felt like they wouldn't know what to say. They've put those limits on having those conversations. I pray that they would recognize you're in those and you can work through them. Lord, for those that maybe have just been wallowing in disgrace and in shame because of the way they've lived and they're quick to remember who they were, I pray they would remember right now who they are, that your grace abounds in their life. And because of that, that grace removes their disgrace. You don't see them through that lens. You see them through your love, mercy, and grace. May they learn to see themselves the same way. Maybe for others, it's the fact they've grown weary in waiting for you. They've been trusting you with, a, with you answering a prayer in a certain way for them. But may they know today that maybe it's not about them right now. That you're working around and through their life, yes, but you have a purpose that prevails above what they're asking for. And they would just learn to trust you that you do all things right and good in your time. So whatever it might be, I pray we'd respond today to you and say, Lord, let that greeting of unexpected news touch our life and then let us act upon it, to act upon it, to do something with what we've heard today. Maybe for others, it's just trusting you more or having those conversations they've not yet had with their loved ones about who you are and how you've been a Savior in their own lives. So bless them, we pray today, for that assurance of your grace at work in their life. In Jesus' name, amen.